uh, the door was cracked open and I was like, this is kind of weird. But then I'm yelling for him and yelling for him and he's not answering. And I walk around the corner and then he had hung himself in my bedroom, like on my bedroom door. And I do find this a lot in public safety, police, fire, EMS, and, and our military members. So many of them just freaking beat the odds because most kids with that that level of trauma handed to them and the circumstances that she had, she 1000% beat the odds. And it was just her resilience and the choices that she made, which were not easy choices. And I'm going right for the sound of the distress. You know, I mean, that's what they teach us at the end of the day, go for the sound where it's at. So Nick and I switch, and then that's when uh, Nick gets it about yay far. And that's when he starts getting hit with bullets. He goes down and then I get hit right after him. You know, and they tell you in the academy, don't focus on the injury, focus on getting out. You need to stay alive, you need to stay alive, you need to stay alive, get out. And what we do in replicating the rapid eye movements while you pull up a traumatic moment thought image and in doing that, what happens is it, it forces the frontal lobe of the brain to open the synapses and move the trauma to your long-term memory. The difference between a trauma and a bad memory is trauma stays trapped in your frontal lobe and will trigger you forever, but a bad memory can move. And so the key is, is that we move it to your long-term memory and you'll never forget it, but what happens is people can now work through it You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow, we can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Welcome back ATO friends. Today the Assisi Officer Foundation goes on a road trip to Cedar Park, Texas to sit down with a true hero. We are sitting down in the nurturing office of Dr. Tanya Glenn and Associates. This is Joe King. I'm a detective Kristen Green and we're always honored to welcome on our very special guest co-host, the great Tanya Glenn. Tanya, thank you for being here. Yet again. Thank you for having me yet again. Welcome to TGA headquarters. Now, I like this. This is way better than what we usually record in. Yeah, I mean, no, you've been to it. I have. It's, it's a beautiful room. Oh, it it's is. It's a little ghetto, but yeah. it's all right. Yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> in the, it's in the Dallas ghetto. So, all right. I mentioned we're sitting with a hero today. She's 31 years old, born in Utah, and made her way to Texas when she was eight. This woman experienced tragedy early on in life, suffered severe loss. In 2016, she went from being an EMT to applying to become a cadet at a police department. She's fierce 
She's resilient. She's a lifesaver. She is Jackie Keyless. Hello. <laughs> Jackie, thanks for sitting down with us. Of course. No pressure after that intro. I know. I was like, no, oh, it's, hold on. Who should be in this Actually, room? Actually, I wasn't recording anyway. <laughs> I was kidding. We're going to redo it This again. is like my fourth time to do this intro. They've had to sit here and, and watch me. All right. I mentioned before you grew up in Utah before coming to Texas. How was that growing up in Utah? And how did good. you end up in Texas? Uh, so I left. Um, I grew up in Utah. And then actually at 18, I went over to, I came to Texas. Okay. It was uh, after my dad's suicide, just kind of the cultural and everything like that out there was just very hard to deal with. And so for me, it was fresh start, get somewhere new, kind of not where you're in this cultural different world right if you would say utah to texas is I'm, i would i've never been to utah actually i have gone to utah salt lake city for a convention but that was i didn't live there yeah yeah it's a definitely a cultural different world like everybody's very stringent like you you don't find too many people that break outside of the norms of like we don't drink caffeine and we don't drink coffee and we don't drink and we don't swear and we don't and then the lds yes okay yes the very mormon culture which is what i mean i was raised in but you know after my dad died it kind of changed everything for me i've read about your dad's career from your bio that you sent me mm -hmm. uh can you talk about his military experiences and what he went through so he was a corpsman he was attached to the marine corps mm -hmm. uh he joined the military when i was about eight years old uh, one of those, hey, I'm going to get in and, you know, it's going to help me go to college and finish school and I don't have to pay for anything. That was kind of the thought process with him and my mom. And then uh, between then and then that's when 9-11 happened. And then, of course, the war in Iraq. And so he went on his first deployment, covered like Indonesia, different places like that, got exposed to nerve gas, got exposed to all these different things, came back. And then they said, hey, it's your turn. You're going to Iraq. Uh, during his first deployment in Iraq, he was a corpsman, obviously seeing blood, death, gore, uh, watching his friends and colleagues get blown up. And in one of the Humvees, one of the days, he got blown up with three of the guys that died. He was the sole survivor. Uh, so that took a big, huge toll on him. He came back, and then they said, hey, you're going back again. So he went back again, and then during his time out there, they found that he was having some mental health issues and sent him home. Well, it sounds like he, he had good reason to have mental health issues oh, yeah. with that Absolutely. trauma after trauma stacked on. And uh, Tanya, can you, what are your thoughts on that? So I'll tell you, um, in my work with the Marine Corps, um, I've, of the big, the big groups I've dealt with were the invasion and Fallujah, uh, hands down, the invasion and Fallujah have been the most traumatic and very, very, very difficult for people to overcome. So Anytime I have a veteran and they, they're talking Fallujah, I'm like, man, I just, I feel that pain. You know, it's just, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. And there was, of course, you know, drive on and keep going and, you know, and then they ship you home and say thank you and here's your parade and go, you know. So I know that mental health come a long way, even in the military, since shell shock and, you know, all of the different names that it's been over the time. But in the early 2000s, what was mental health like for the military? You know, it was very unit specific, I found. Um, you know, I was called in to work with the 4th Marine Division because the general wanted help for his people. They also had some very tough deployments. But then I talked to other Marines who had basically just, you know, a, a quick check-in when they got back. Some of them just filled out a checklist when they got back. And it was like, hey, you know, just be sure to register with the VA and thanks for your service and off you go. 
Do you know how it was for your dad? They got them off the plane and they said, if you feel like you are having any mental health issues, and mind you, my dad, this was his only retirement. So they said, is this, if you're feeling like you're having mental health issues, go over there. We'll discharge you from the military with a medical discharge. If you're not, you can come on this side. So yeah, you're either getting help and you're out or you're not getting help and you can stay in. Yeah. At what point during all of this was your parents divorced? Uh, so my parents got divorced shortly after he joined the military. Okay. So yeah. they were divorced throughout most of that. Yeah. How was your parents' divorce and him being in the military in terms of you guys working out your family dynamic? So and then when he's having trouble, yeah, were you able to like talk to your mom about that? Was it just you guys at home? Like, so it was initially my parents like once they got divorced, they were like best friends. They got along like vacation together. Like it was really awkward and weird. Like you know, it's that one like Bruce Willis like Demi Moore type situation yeah. where they're like best friends. Sure. Uh, yeah. But married, oh no, they were like, you know, they were fighting with each other left and right and just so, arguing and up each other. So things know. got better. Oh yeah. And, the, and that was the thing is they were such good friends. Like my, my dad gave my mom all the access to his bank accounts while wow. he was in Iraq, made sure that I was taken care of and stuff like that. But it wasn't until when he came back when I was 13, 14, that I saw that shift of personality. I saw that shift of my dad being different and not being able to have that conversation of like I don't understand what's going on because I'm too young at the time to really get the the whole dynamic of what happened to my dad out there so you noticed something was going on oh yeah did your mom like were they trying to handle it or was it just something that they no one talked about well my dad was trying to or my mom was trying to push my dad into getting help but my dad of course was like no if I admit that I need help I'm gonna get you know kicked out of the military I can't lose this retirement this is all I have this is the only thing that I have going for me because my dad was my dad worked with in the as a cop for a couple years then he jumped over and became a paramedic for a couple years and then he jumped into different career fields and never really kept some steady form of job just because he was trying to chasing adrenaline yeah okay yeah so I was reading um in Tanya's book your excerpts about just little things that you notice of the excitement to take you to soccer practice was different everything was everything everything was different like i mean it it wasn't until one night he sets me down and of course being a corpsman he's got cds of photos of his guy's injuries he's got photos of dead iraqis things like that and my dad has nobody like he doesn't have anybody to talk to so he's sitting down one night with me at the computer and just showing me injury photos and this photo and that photo and i'm realizing wow and how old are you 14 and i'm like i'm literally sitting there like this isn't normal like this isn't right and then i'm starting to notice like he's you know he's now drinking a little more he's starting to have ptsd issues he's starting to cut himself and like he's starting to have really bad nightmares where he's coming at me in the middle of the night when he did come home and i'm just like this isn't right something's not working it's the high risk lifestyle was just Getting amped up oh, just yeah. to cope. Well, and then part of it, too, is like in the middle of the night, he would, if he didn't take his meds, he would have full-blown Flash, major nightmares thinking that he was back in Iraq. Terrible. Yeah. 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 Um, so there was definitely a pattern just of downfall. Oh, right? yeah. Clearly. Oh, yeah. And that kind of came to a head in July of yep. uh, 2006. Yes. Can you talk about that? So he had had... Um, been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer early on, got cleared of that, and then had uh, ulcers that were bursting 
uh, the entire month of February. So like my freshman year of high school, I was in the ICU with him pretty much almost every single day because he would get out and then go back in, get out, get back in because he was just bleeding out constantly. And that was all I, I was all he had. And so you go to that and then it just, it was like this downward spiral of just issues. And then in July, um, he started making more suicidal comments again. It wasn't the first time to my mom that he'd made them. And my mom was like, look, we're going to go to the movie. It'll be fine. Just take a breath, go take a nap. We'll come get you in a little bit and showed up at his house. My mom's like, go upstairs and go get him. Cause they still had that kind of respect boundaries of like my yeah. mom didn't go to into his house type thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I walked, uh, the door was cracked open and I was like, that's kind of weird. Like, why is the door cracked open? And I'm yelling for him and yelling for him and he's not answering. So I walk around the corner and I don't see him. And like, so the bed, uh, the door to the apartment was here and you could see into the bedroom. I don't see him. I'm like, Oh great. Like, cause he'd previously gone on the roof of the apartment complex when he was in a PTSD state and stuff like that. And I was just like, where the hell is he? And I walk around the corner and then he had hung himself in my bedroom, like on my bedroom door. Wow. How old was he whenever? 39. 39. Yeah. Um, That's traumatic for anybody, you know. So how how did you cope with that? I mean, as a being that young. It was hard because I I knew I needed to get into therapy. So I did immediately. But I watched my mom. You know, this is her best friend for the last 15 years 20 years like because i ran downstairs to get her and she fe- she was the one that ended up being able to untie him because i couldn't yeah and i watched her downfall so i had to be strong for her but i'm also 15 years old well and that's and tanya can probably talk more about that's a really volatile environment to grow up in and yeah. be in because not only did that happen at the end of it he's making suicidal comments before that Yep. Um, which are huge warning signs. Escalating. And yeah, mm-hmm. then he's got major medical issues. Yep. But then you're he's showing you these photos and you yep. can see that something's going on and then you feel so helpless because you're so young and you don't know how to do anything. You don't know how to help. And so that's a really difficult situation to grow up in. And I think that contributes to any trauma. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, people like Jackie, I always look at them and they, you know, she completely beat the odds. Yeah. Given her circumstances, like she should be in prison, right? right. Or hooked on drugs <laughs> or, you know. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. We, we, no way, oh, yeah. We, you know, she completely, completely beat the odds. And I do find this a lot in public safety, police, fire, EMS, and, and our military members. So many of them just freaking beat the odds. Because most kids with that that level of trauma handed to them and the circumstances that she had and, you know, essentially being parentified and having to take care of her mom, she 1,000% beat the odds. And it was just her resilience and the choices that she made, which were not easy choices. Mm-hmm. Well, suicide in, in military and, and, and first responders is so widespread. It, I mean, it, it happens all the time. And, and it spiderwebs out from the effect just the person the, oh, yeah. the, the survivors were never going to be the same you said no. you had to watch your your mother's downfall oh yeah and, and her decline after after that oh yeah and you i mean and you're you're coping everybody else that was in his life even on the you know the peripheral that they're struggling with that oh yeah right oh yeah everybody i mean it it it's a big spider web effect of it affected so many individuals. Like there's guys in my dad's unit that I still talk to to this day that like they're affected by it and they're, his choice has completely affected them and their family and the way that they've 
dealt with their entire life since that point. What's well, just a ripple effect? It, it, it's like a ripple effect oh, yeah. of a crime, right? When oh, yeah. there's a victim of a crime, uh, like say a homicide, or it's the relatives and then the close friends and, mm-hmm. it, and it's and the peers, right? Mm-hmm. And when an officer um, or, or military, they, they, uh, they go that route, it's the, like an entire department, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah. Uh, where did you live at the time when this happened? Utah. Okay. Yeah. How do you think that impacted you and like your relationships going forward? Initially, it was, you know, being 15, you're at that volatile state in, in to begin with. You know, you've got the hormones, you've got, you know, changes in general, just trying to grow up and learn and live life and things like that. And it completely just 180 my life, in, in my opinion where I went from this happy-go-lucky kid to just didn't think anything and just kind of let had blinders on. I mean, and that's a lot of just living in Utah in general. You just live with blinders on because they don't see. We don't confront things. Yes, like, yes. We ignore it. Yes. To now I'm like, you know, I'm 15 years old planning my dad's funeral at a table with uh, the mortician and family members because my mom's outside screaming, realizing that she can't cope with this. And just going back and forth and just trying to, like, keep my family together and held together while trying to help my grandparents. And, I mean, I ended up going from being 15 and blinders on to being 25, basically 25 (laughs) managing family members and friends. And do you think that it took a while? Because once you become that independent, like, you don't reach out to anybody, that kind of, like, marks you. Oh, yeah. And so it's so hard after that to get to a point where you feel comfortable leaning on someone else or you feel comfortable asking for help or saying, I'm having trouble with this or talking. Oh, yeah. And I I picked the the one person I picked to reach out to was my ex-husband. Okay. And, of course, being at that point, I'm now 16, 17, meeting somebody who's 21 22 and is promising this life and this hey we're gonna get away from all this you're gonna start over you're gonna have this amazing you know la-di-da life and which is an imbalance power dynamic oh yeah yeah and that's where it's like okay like you're gonna take me away from everything and all the problems in my life and i'm never gonna have to deal with this crap again i don't have to be a mom anymore i don't have to take care of my grandparent i don't have to be the parent for everybody now i can be me but that never no. is the best coping. Yeah. No. Right. And then, of course, no. it doesn't pan out. Right. No, it's going to push no. it down the yeah. road. Oh, no. So it'll no. be fine for a few, a little bit, but it's going to push it down the road until oh, yeah. you actually confront any of the, oh, yeah. the trauma. You want to dive in on that, Tanya? Well, I think that, you know, it, it really, that, that person who interjected himself into her life really, um, as you'll hear kind of later as we get into the, you know, the most recent stuff, really, really played a, a dynamic in, Jackie's coping and her resilience. I mean, in a way it's, um, of course with post-traumatic growth, it's made her better, stronger, wiser, but having someone who comes in to save the day is never really there to save the day. And even if his intentions were good, um, it's just a setup because, you know, here she thinks she's getting away from everything wrong and then figuring out life and marriage and, you know, all the, all the challenges that come in a marriage is, is just presenting themselves now at the ripe old age of 16. And so, you know, it's just, it's more, more trauma on top of more trauma, you know, at a, at a time where she really just needed someone to, to teach her how to, how to progress to adulthood health in a healthy way. The only way over trauma is through trauma. Right. Exactly. There's no, there's no saving it. Exactly. You mentioned your mother, uh, decline. What, what happened to your mother? So she ended up having nightmares to the point that she was taking Ambien 
and of course Ambien's never a good it's a toxic thing in my opinion because it turned into walking nightmares like just trying to leave the house me having to hide keys like I slept on the couch from 16 to 17 or 16 to 18 right before I left I slept on the couch because I was so worried she was just gonna leave the house and or walk out or then it was hey let me wake you up and make sure that you're awake for work because now the ambient is finally kicked into the point where you're asleep and you know now you're not waking up for work in a lot of ways it was like caring for somebody that was drinking themselves to Mm -hmm. sleep right oh yeah and then i mean on top of it she was going through the trauma of losing my dad who was that one person in my opinion just her love of her life and so she's dealing with, then she's jumping from guy to guy to guy to guy to guy to guy to guy, yeah. and then to- finds a yeah. toxic, uh, my stepdad, a very toxic, very manipulative person that just is controlling her, and now she's dumped into this toxic environment where she's letting this guy move in where she normally wouldn't. He's got these friends that are doing meth in the garage. Like, I mean, and it's just a, you know, from the woman that was married to this military hero guy that was just, you know, athletic always working out to this guy that's 400 pounds and has a bunch of friends in the garage smoking dope it's like where did this go 180 yeah 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 it's like high risk turned up to 12 right? oh yeah absolutely yeah what age are you at this point uh 17 turning 18 okay yeah. and then about to move to texas oh yeah and then as soon as i ended up i dropped out of the regular high school went to the alternative high school so i could graduate early and mm-hmm. just beat feet because i was like i'm over it i'm done with all the chaos so, so but i went to more chaos <laughs> right yeah, well that's how it is but you overcome that's, oh yeah we're gonna, we're gonna get to the overcoming oh, part yeah. we're gonna go through this whole up and down oh yeah of jackie q yeah well it's all right <laughs> Roll roller coaster and you're still young oh yeah <laughs> told myself that I won't feel yeah. it some days some days oh. i'm like oh 30 well, hit hard once you hit 30 it's like it's a lot Shut yeah. up. But really? <laughs> what you hit? Yeah, okay. I'm with you at 40 and beyond. Um, how'd you get to Texas? Tell us about that. Uh, packed all my stuff up. As soon as they handed me my graduation certificate, I packed all my stuff and said, sayonara, and left. Uh, got an apartment in Lake Travis because that was the only place I could find that my mom had to co-sign on, and she agreed to co-sign on it because... For whatever reason, they didn't trust an 18-year-old by themselves. Imagine that. Yeah. Shock. Yeah. Shock. Texas doesn't trust nobody. But so signed on that and then lived there for six months, found a much cheaper apartment after that. And uh, uh, boyfriend moved in. We went down to the courthouse and did the whole, here's our informal marriage and got married. And yeah. Starting a new amazing life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, what drove you to the interest of being EMT? So I think a lot of it was my dad being a medic. And, you know, as a kid growing up, you see, hey, dad stops on the side of the road with a motorcycle wreck. You, dad stops on the side of the road and helps this person. And, you you know, you start to draw that interest. And in high school, they gave us the opportunity to get our EMT licenses and start pursuing and all that. And so that's what I did was I went to all those classes. I went did the ride outs. And I was like, yeah, this is my dream. But in the back of my head, I was like, you know, it'll be a stepping stone to be a doctor. That was my, you know, I'm going to move to Texas. I'm going to go to med school. I'm going to do all this stuff. And then, you know, slowly started to realize, like, eh, it takes a lot of effort to do all this. So, yeah, <laughs> a lot, of, a lot yeah. of effort, a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. 
and still bills to pay. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Absolutely. So you got your EMT. Yeah. How was, how did you like it? I enjoyed it. Like I did all of my clinicals up in Temple, up in the Belton area. And then I did some ride outs with Williamson County EMS. And I mean, I was just like enamored. Everything was just like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Oh my gosh. Like, well, every the, five minutes, my eyes were like, well, the excitement is one thing, but then did helping people. Yes. A but, lot of it was that like, I watched these. And so Paul, it, he still works for Williamson County. I see him from time to time. Uh, he was my preceptor. And watching him go from like this little old lady that just needs some help. Like, you know, she's got diabetes and she feels her blood sugars crashing. So he's, you know, making her a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and call on family to now we're going to this person who's having internal bleeding and we're running code and we're, you know, packing wounds and doing this and doing that to like, but he just, his, you know, his caring for the people never changed from person to person to person. And he just wanted to help them and get them into a better place. And that was just what totally suckered me into it, I guess I should say. It infected you in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Infectious behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And then that feeling of, of actually helping somebody. Oh yeah. What surprised you the most when you became an EMT? Uh, probably when I got to Austin, just the... Um, That's a whole other ballgame. It's a whole other ballgame. Like, you know, Williamson County is Williamson County. It's very quiet and suburban. And then I go and I'm downtown Austin dealing with a homeless person that has smoked K2. And I'm like, and they're like Volatile. completely tripping and they're trying to fight with you. And it was like, whoa. You know, there's more than just the little old lady that needs a peanut butter sandwich. Yeah, I don't know if people realize EMTs get into oh, yeah. get into fights too. Oh yeah, right. Like they, you oh, guys yeah. have to. Yeah. Oh yeah. Can restrain people sometimes. Oh yeah, and you have to. You know, and it's one of those. You look at the the aspects and the danger level for those medics is sometimes higher than the cops because of the fact they're inside a little tiny confined space mm-hmm. with these people that are volatile they don't have anything to defend themselves with other than their fists no body armor they don't have i mean they did down there but it was <clears throat> you wore it at a choice unless it was like a shots fire call or something like that then you had to put it on but otherwise you wore it as a choice if you wanted to wear it all day great if you didn't you didn't and who wants to wear that all day no, right. no it's one. sweaty and nasty and it's 24 stinks. hours yeah. for them too yeah, yeah. oh so, yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah and then you're not yeah. sleeping and yeah. your your sleep schedule is crazy oh, yeah. and oh the adrenaline spikes oh and that was the thing is it would go like you'd go two three four days where it's just eh, little piddly things here and there and then it was like Boom. oh three gang shootings back to back to back to back and then it was Nothing, 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 nothing. And then it was, you know, cardiac arrest, cardiac arrest, cardiac arrest, back to back to back to back to back. And then for, so for law enforcement, at least in Dallas, the 4th of July weekend is typically Mm. the busiest, right? So I don't know if it it was the same for EMTs. Oh, yeah. But you're doing that, and then that is around the same time that your father had died. So was that, do you think that was playing a role in anything? Oh, absolutely. I noticed, and that's... It wasn't until I became a cop when I reached out, but I was like, I noticed every year from like May to August, I was just angry and irritable and like every little tiny piddly thing pissed me off. And I was just, I was getting into arguments with at work, arguments at home. You know, I went from like, I'm very like, I try to work out every day. I would, those couple months, like you wouldn't see me in the gym. You wouldn't see me doing anything. I was just very like, leave me alone. I don't want to deal with anything Mm -hmm. and that's trauma for you right Mm -hmm. so the season the the temperature the 
the the dates, the holidays, all that is like this not so subtle reminder and your brain just is triggered. And sometimes you, people don't even recognize like until we look at, oh, well, let's look at why what's going on during this time frame or this is the anniversary of and then people start to see it. Right. So very, very normal to, to have this, this reaction and sometimes not even know why I know for me, April is like brace for impact because Oklahoma city and, you know, Columbine and all the things, all the April 19th is like the big sort of the big hold your breath day in law enforcement because of all the things that have happened. And I, I'd noticed that like every April, um, even more than nine 11, every April, I'm just like, Oh, here we go. Here we go. Oh crap. It's April. You it's know? your busy yeah. month. Yeah, absolutely. So here she's got like a whole season of that, you know, May through mm-hmm. July. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, that's a tough, that's, that's a lot of, that's a lot of just stuff to pull along in your life. That's a lot of heavy baggage. And you don't know at the time right? until no. you, until you get in there to see therapy and they're like, this is what's going oh, on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And it was just this constant, like, and that's the thing is it's summer and it's, you've got kids, like the drownings, the pools are opening up. You've got like, I mean, and you're just as a medic seeing back to back to back to back stuff on top of having just that internal fight of, Hey, something's going on, but you just don't want to admit it yet. Yeah. Did you look at that kind of work and, uh, and career path as a, for one, a way to help help somebody because it sounded like whenever that happened with your father, you were doing all you could at your young age and with your capabilities and your maturity to try to save and help him. Oh, yeah. And then after the fact, you're doing the the same with your trying to yeah. save your mother. Yeah. And you're doing and now you're doing a job that it's a roller coaster of emotion and trauma that you're seeing yeah. over and over and over. Was that, did you look at that as a way it distracted you from your own grief because you were absorbing so many other people's grief? I think so. And I think a lot of it was just that internal, like, hey, here's my way I can act. Like, you couldn't save this person, couldn't save this person. So here you can almost fulfill that that void of, hey, I need to save somebody. And now here I am saving people or Mm -hmm. helping people, even if it's the piddly little, you know, things, but helping somebody along the way. Mm -hmm. I can see that. Yeah. Ooh, okay. I know. Look at that. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron, open those wounds. <laughs> we haven't gotten to law yeah. enforcement yet. Yeah, we didn't even get to your your law enforcement. That's why I cover my gray roots. <laughs> yeah. I don't even bother anymore. I wear a hat. Uh, I'm wearing a hat to cover my gray. Tanya's like, wait, what? I what actually had, when did this happen? Yeah. She's like, we need to talk after this. Um, <laughs> so moving on into law enforcement. Why did you want to es- why would you want to escalate your trauma? <laughs> you know, so it's funny I look back and one of the APD officers that died, he was constantly like berating me with like application packets. He's like, "You have the you have the drive, you have the mentality. You're much more like you're aggressive, abrasive, like you're not that's not what you're driven for. You need to like you need to apply here, you need to apply here, you need to apply here." And he was constantly doing it. And finally, one day I was like, fine. You broke. <laughs> you know, that was the other thing. I'm like, you know, my ex is job to job to job to job to job to job. And I'm like, you know, this will give me that pay bump of like, hey, you know, finally start to like even out the debt and even out this and not have to stress about this or that, you know. And still help people. And still help people yeah. at the end of the day. So I was like, you know what? You know, sure. I'll do it. That's how yeah. we wrote people in. We oh, like yeah. To just inundate them with application packets to like misery loves company oh yeah oh yeah that's right and so it was funny because i was like all right cool so i like you know application here application here application here and then you know finally somebody was like hey you want to come you want to come over here and i was like sure and who is that somebody uh cedar park okay yeah 
for the listener, can you describe like a location for Cedar Park, where that is in Texas? It's central Texas. It's just northwest of Austin, probably 10 miles. Yeah, about 10 miles. 10, 15 miles north of Austin. Mm-hmm. About Round Rock, too. Right? Mm-hmm. It's close to that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we have a lot of people. Uh, I mean, Italy, for some odd reason. Shout out Italy is not Italy, Texas, but the country. Italy. They, they're they a big listener to this for some odd reason, so shout out to them. So that way they actually know where Cedar Park, Texas is. Yeah. yeah. Cedar Park is, it's grown a lot. It's kind of a, kind of a, well, a mesh it, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a mesh of people. Um, a lot of cops and firefighters lived out here until it just got so expensive. And they of course pushed out further West and North for the most part. <clears throat> um, Cedar Park is, um, it's busy and there's tons of businesses and financially it's very, very successful and stable. It's a great place to live. Uh, it's a great city. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, but it's busy. It's busy. It, oh, it's, it's busy. It sounds like it's probably like the equivalent of Frisco, Texas, yes. which is Frisco yes. is by Dallas. Mm-hmm. It's and it's kind of yeah, and it's grown just mm-hmm. tons. And when I went to high school many many years ago, we played them in high school Frisco, and there was there was nothing. Yeah, they're three A now they're five A, and they're just yes. you know, oh, yeah. yes. and all the money is in Frisco. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, you know, hell, Jerry right. Jones built a star out there. Is is mm-hmm. is the Cowboys yeah. training facility? Mm-hmm. So yeah, okay. So what was that transition like? It was weird to go from the downtown Austin, East Austin, kind of like hustle and bustle to now I'm working nights and now I, you know, and I was called to call to call to call to call most nights. And then I went to like, hey, you have to find your own activity. Yeah. Because it's not call to call to call to call to call to call like you thought it was going to be. And so now you're having to find stuff and work with stuff and you know jump on calls to help somebody else out just so you're not like sitting in a parking lot you know spinning your wheels for six hours well yeah as the emt you're you're basically a reactive yeah. function right yeah. you know it's when you're called yep you know and and police to a point you do that too but if there's no calls and then depending on what kind of officer you want to be you're yep. going to go in you want to run traffic you want to go after dwis and or you yep. want to chase dope or go after gangbangers or whatever you know you yep. You know, yeah. What kind of work did you gravitate to? A lot of mine was more uh, family violence and then dope were my two like gravitations. So, yeah, yeah. always going to be family violence. Yeah. Were people less happy to see you as an officer than as oh, an EMT? Oh, yeah. obvi- obviously. <laughs> yeah. And she had a gun. <laughs> now they're like, somebody's going to jail. Crap. You're like yeah. everywhere I go, people don't want to see me. Yeah. This is strange. Yeah. That was a weird mindset too. It's like difficult. Shift. Yeah. It's difficult. And that is one of the things with the job is when you're in a job where you show up and people don't want to see you and you know, and there is a huge community that supports law enforcement. Oh, yeah. And we appreciate those that community so much. But there are people that you show up and they do not want to see you. And oh, yeah. even if they called you, they don't want to see you and they're mad that you showed up, they're mad that you did something. And having that kind of negativity show like at your job is difficult to deal with and it can contribute to long-term stress. It can contribute to complex trauma. Well, and here it was, you know, I got lucky in the fact that 99.9% of the citizens in the city of Cedar park are very pro law enforcement. They want to see you. They want to, you know, it was, you'd go out to dinner and every single time you, you didn't pay for anything. And it was, it was very like, you know, nobody ever asked them to, but they were just, that was how driven it was. They just wanted to, take care of their cops they want to take care of their firefighters you know and so i got lucky on that fact but there were those 
those calls where you're going to that same house for the seventh, eighth, ninth time in a week where they just, they don't want to see you, even though they called for you, they don't mm-hmm. want to see you. They don't want you. And yeah, it was hard to go from constantly, Hey, we're happy to see you. Cause you're going to save my grandma, my cousin, my kid. Thank you. To mm-hmm. now it's like, get out of my house. Like mm-hmm. you called me. Yeah. <laughs> Tanya, do you, you've seen so many different first responders and military. The, Changing a profession, going from EMT to to like a cop or a fireman, uh, especially a cop, because you cops have to have more of an aggressive, proactive approach in, in, in their career. Have you seen any kind of getting used to trauma and, and, and coping mechanisms going from that career to law enforcement? In have, terms of, have you like, like from a mental health uh, standpoint? Oh. Yeah, of you have to shift gears to do the EMT job yeah. from a reactive approach and, and more purely lifesaver, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And then as opposed to being an officer of taking an aggressive uh, approach to your career yeah. and and upholding laws. It's, it's definitely a transition. And I mean, just look at what happened in the summer of 2020. All the EMS people were like, I'm EMS. Look at these three letters on my back. EMS. Like, I'm here to help. Like, don't, don't throw rocks at me. Yeah. And, you know, and generally, generally... They were left alone, not always, but you know, but here, boy, here comes the, the masses and the mobs going after our police officers. Yeah. And so it, it is, it, it is a whole different mindset and it, it takes a whole different shift and approach. Um, I think that a lot of people, when something's gone wrong and you need EMS, everybody's like, oh, thank God EMS is here. Mm-hmm. But then police roll up and, and, ah. and yeah, and then they're pissed, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, Mike, my, my husband told me the other night, he said, somehow I've managed to piss off everybody so far without even trying. I'm just here to do my job, you know, and that's, that sums it up. Right. Oh, yeah. So it is, it is a transition, a, a big mental transition. Oh, yeah. So to like pull somebody over to like my last day at work, I pulled two people over and both times they were bawling, bawling their eyes out. And I'm like, I wasn't even going to give you a ticket. Like, I'm just giving you a heads up. Your brake lights out. Calm down. Like, <laughs> holy. Yeah. It's fine. You know? Yeah. Breathe. And Breathe. it was one of those, like, you've done the job long enough. You know, it's a real cry, not for, like versus yeah, the, like, I'm trying to cry. force something to, like, so I don't get a ticket both times. And yeah. I'm just like, holy crap. <laughs> that was me, my first ticket. So. Yeah. Well, I want to get into an incident that happened April 11th, 2018. That apparently that you... I forgot about. You, apparently you, <laughs> apparently she, I told them you told me that. They're like, how could she forget that? I'm like, she's done so much since then. I know. I, damn, and there's something else that she brought up. I was like, wait, we, we got a lot to talk about here no. with, well, this with is, Jackie. This is the paramedic inter, or the EMT inner too. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, so that night I was sitting across from this apartment complex and it comes out as a structure fire. And I'm like, okay, I'll go over there. You know, whatever. Nine times out of ten, I found that it was, like, some little, like, kitchen fire or something like that. Finally find the actual, like, apartment because the numbers on the apartments are all messed up. Finally find the apartment, and it's just, like, white billowing smoke just coming out of this apartment. And I'm sitting there, and I'm, like, looking around, and all these people, I'm like, hey, did this person ever come out of their apartment? They're like, no. And I'm like, uh, crap. So I remembered my EMT training and they had told us like the firefighters had told us white blowing smoke means fires out. So if you kick it, it shouldn't like do some big, flash huge flashover. <clears throat> it should be either out or it's an electrical fire. So you should be safe to kick it. And if somebody's down, they're probably right within the doorway I would or not near the doorway. Any of that, by the way. <laughs> so I kicked the door and I got hit and it was just like, 
And then the two guys that were with me come right behind me and they're crawling on the floor and they went in and I'm just like, what the heck just happened? Like, and then I'm sitting there panicking. Cause I'm like, these two just went in there and two of my guys just went in there and the fire department's rolling up just low key. And I'm just like, uh, what do I do? And then they come, they're dragging him out. So I helped them drag him out and help the firefighters start bagging the guy and getting oxygen on him and helping like, you know, doing the, the medic skills kicked in, you know, trying to get him back to breathing. And he literally, so they tell you like in medic school, like, Hey, you're the, uh, oral pharyngeal device that like helps open somebody's airway. Mm-hmm. If they're waking up, they'll start to gag. So you'll pull it out. This dude sits up full blown, turns around and looks at me with that still in his mouth. And I'm just like, Oh, my shit. on my face my <laughs> eyes are like and i grab it and i yank it back out of his mouth and i'm like oh my god <laughs> this is a bad and then the paramedic okay. walks up behind me and i'm like this is all yours bro i'm out <laughs> this isn't my job anymore yep. i'm law enforcement now <laughs> you're welcome for helping out i'm leaving yeah all right jackie i'm gonna play i actually have uh the body cam footage oh, and and like you described you go up and you kick the door and as how as as this video starts you're you can tell you just kicked the door you could actually hear it as your yep. as your cover is running up and you're stepping away that i would imagine that door when it cracked it was like a somebody opened up a hot ass oven and oh they, yeah the heat hit it oh you. yeah so i'm gonna play this little audio and then we're gonna talk about it and kind of walk through it okay all right There they go. Cedar Park Police! Is there anybody? Ask them how many years supposed to be in there. There's supposed to be one guy in there. Hey guys, fire zone. Fire zone. Cedar Park Police! Anybody back there? These two are the real heroes. Hey, I got one down. I got one in the dog. I can't see. Sir! <coughs> 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 Go, he needs yeah. Let me get his... Take out his arms. Get him out. Get him out. He's still breathing. <coughs> All right. Roll him over. Safety position here. All right, that's pretty uh, compelling. The three um, of us went to the academy together, so really? that was the entertainment of all of that, too, on top of everything. Okay. <laughs> so when you got into that room, it, it, everybody, everybody, the listener can hear the uh, gagging and the choking. How Can you describe that? So I didn't go in. Okay, I, was, okay. I was at the door, so those two went in because mm-hmm. um, I got overwhelmed. Like, yeah. I... Of course, stupidly, they had told us even when I was an EMT, like when you kick it, move because mm-hmm. it's going to hit you. Well, no, my dumb self just stands right in front of the door and gets hit. So I stood at the doorway just because at that moment I was like, all right, I, I'm overwhelmed. I don't want to go in and then just fall out. Like, and yeah. then I'm, I'm an ex patient, you know, that's a problem. But at the same time, I'm like, I'm going to stand there and wait for both of them to come out because they need to know that there's at least two of them in there and make sure that they come out. You could hear the kicking. 
Oh yeah. Right, that's what that was. Oh, yeah. That was you kicking that door. Oh yeah. And you turn and basically say, "You say yeah." Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, no, this isn't gonna work." <laughs> who who were the uh, the cover officers? So it was uh, Officer Ian White and then uh, Ryan Xander. All right, shout yeah. out. Yeah, shout they did. Out. They did some good stuff. Like I was, I mean, and Xander even joked like he was like, "I should have gotten down on my hands and knees because I was standing up, walking through all that." And I was, you know, we were, we all laugh and joke about it now, but it was one of those moments of like. The three rookies together on one call, you know, getting in the smoky <laughs> the apartment, smoke. yeah. And those fire smoke detectors are annoying. Even oh annoying. yeah, and there's an actual fire. Oh right yeah, I they did go straight to the uh, recovery position. Though, oh yeah, so that that's was why I was impressive. laughing. He was like, "Let's get in the recovery position." <laughs> in 2020, yep, you had a um, you know a critical incident, to say the least. Yeah, yeah. I want to get into that that uh, that shootout with uh, Taylor. Can you describe that whole incident and the events that led up to that that call? So I had just checked on for work, uh, me and then the two guys from my shift, and then our sergeant. We had just checked on. We were in briefing, and the call came out, and it was, "Hey, you know, this guy and Nick and I looked at each other, and we're just like, eh, this sounds like it may require more than one person." So as we're going, uh, we get into the cars and you hear, Hey, he's armed. So then it was, Hey, let's, we're going to go with, you know, some haste. So lights and sirens going up there and you're just hearing these updates of like, Hey, he's trying to force his way into the, into the house. He's trying to force his way in. Oh, he's in the house. Oh, he's now trying to, you know, now she's locked in the bedroom. Uh, he's trying to force his way into the bedroom. So now it's, it's coming to like, Hey, we've, we've, we're going to have to you know, we're starting to make the plans. I think each of us in our heads are making the plan of what we're going to do. And ultimately at the end of the day, thanks to our training and the amount of training that Cedar Park does, we were able to get in and handle everything. But it was definitely one of those, you start going back to the basics of hostage situations and somebody armed with a gun and how to, you know, get people out safely and all of that. And then I'm also a negotiator at the time. And then I'm hearing that mom's wanting him to get mental health help. So I'm also part of the mental health team. So I'm like, okay, I definitely have to be going into this house at some point to try to get these, you know, family members out. You wear a lot of hats. Yeah. Well, I was well, like, yeah. It was, it was like a Swiss army, army knife yes, hat. Yeah. Yes. Just, I just, just change it. it. Yeah. Like, um, what was the call regarding? Uh, it was honestly I cannot remember off the top of my head but I just remember it was some family disturbance is what I think it came out as and then we just it turned into he's now armed and now it's turned into she's in the bedroom and he's trying to force entry and and it was just that terrifying moment of what do we do to help these people so you guys get to the house and it's you and the two other officers who Mm -hmm. are the two other officers Uh, Nick Anderson and then Chris Hester uh, Hester? Yeah. Okay. So it's you, Anderson, and Hester. Yeah. When you guys get to the house, where is he and what do you guys do? At that point, we're being told by dispatch he's upstairs. He's forcing entry into the bedroom that she's in, that she's tried to lock herself in and be away from him. Because um, dispatch is on the phone trying to tell her, separate, separate, get separated from him. And so we're trying to get through the front door and making announcements, and it's barricaded with a big old huge long sofa and so chris is big big boy um and so he pushes and pushes and pushes and he i'm like dude put your gun down just start forcing the door we'll we'll cover you nick and i've got you so he pushes through the door and pushes that sofa out of the way and then we're just filing around 
and then after he filed around, well, you can up, hear you upstairs. can hear yeah, you can hear noises upstairs. You can hear furniture being moved. You can hear screaming. So we're um, Chris. Chris goes downstairs just to clear the downstairs real quick while yeah. Nick and I go upstairs. And so Nick clears the one room and clears it. But as he's clearing it, I'm holding for him and I can hear screaming in the other room. And I'm like, it's over here. It's over here. At so the top of the stairwell? Yeah, it's okay. up off of the stairwell just a little bit. So I go and I, you know, I'm like, Nick, over here. And I'm going right for the sound of the distress. You know, I mean, that's what they teach us at the end of the day. Go for the sound where it's at. At that point, bypass all the other BS rooms and just go for where you hear the screaming. And yeah, you know, you know something's going on yeah. in that direction. Yeah. All right, when you go up to the, and you go in that direction, what happens now? Like when you're at this on the stairs, I'm trying to kick the or I'm trying to hit kick the door mm-hmm. at this point. Uh, due to my, you know, uh, my personal life, I stopped working out. I was overweight, out of shape, everything like that. So I can't get anything to budge. So that's when Nick also was like, "Hey, I have a long rifle. Let me kick this door. Let me get through this door." So Nick and I switch, and then that's when uh, Nick gets it about yay far maybe a little bit more and that's when he starts getting hit with bullets he goes down and then i get hit right after him did he were you on the stairwell when this happened no uh, we were up, up on, on the on top the, of the stairs yeah like okay. right at that landing so he's shooting through the door yeah. at this point mm-hmm. what kind of weapon did he have I believe it was a nine mil okay i okay. honestly can't tell you um so when he goes down what what do you do I'm trying to get on top, like trying to move out of his way right. and get a, over him so he can get out. Because all I see is he's just got blood coming down from his arm. Okay, and, and I'm, you're providing cover for him. Yeah, to get trying to provide cover for him. At which point I get hit and I fall back on top of him. So now it's a struggle of like bodies of like moving. Everybody needs to get out of the way. So I get behind him and start to try to drag him by the back of his uniform mm. shirt. And I'm sitting in the stairwell with my feet up against the stairs and just pulling him so I can try to get him further back. When you got hit, where did you get hit? In my vest, in okay. the left rib cage. Okay. And at that point, how did it, when that hit you, how did that feel? Oh, it and, felt like I got hit with a baseball bat. Okay. 100%. <laughs> right. It looked like it hurt. Oh, it, it, it hurt, but it was that chaos of bullets, buddies down, everything's just like going so fast where it's like, hey, you know, and they tell you in the academy, don't focus on the injury focus on getting out you need to stay alive you need to stay alive you need to stay alive quit focusing on what's going on get out all right we're, we're going to get to the how this ended up but i want tanya to talk about just the physical what, what was going on inside your mind you know could you talk about that tanya yeah so you know obviously the gift mm-hmm. of adrenaline has kicked in and you know it's it's blocking pain which helps a lot i mean i know i know it hurt but um it didn't hurt near as much as it actually hurt because the adrenaline um that warrior mindset has kicked on right and so um so everything all the training all the muscle memory just takes over and survival and instincts and that fight that fight response just took over and you know everything that everything that happened with jackie that day was just perfect in terms of surviving and staying alive and staying in the fight. Um, and I do want to say that, you know, at, at, at that point we had already done a lot of work on her dad, uh, and her dad's suicide. So, um, we had, we had done EMDR for her dad's suicide and, and worked really hard to get through that. And then she'd also been peripheral to another officer involved shooting. And she was so resilient after that, after that one, that her EMDR took all of 10 minutes. So, so Jackie, even though she's saying she wasn't in the best physical shape, cognitively emotionally mentally 
she's, you know, just a great officer and such a fighter. And so, um, you know, I know she's dealing with a, a lot at the time that we'll get to, but, um, but she, no doubt about, no doubt about it that she was, she was in that fight to stay in that fight. Oh yeah. She flipped a switch. Um, so you're trying to get him out of, out of the, uh, out yeah. of the line of fire. Yeah. So I ended up, Nick is crawling on his back trying to get out and i just see blood and for me at the moment i thought it was coming from his neck okay where was it coming it from? was coming from his arm okay but just that whole tunnel yeah. vision of like i'm trying to assess in my emt brain of where is this injury at where is it coming from where is this blood coming from and he ends up for whatever reason i thought he went behind me but he didn't he went into this the bedroom he had cleared and he knew it was clear because mm. you know training kicks in what's the one path of least resistance that you already know is good to go he went in there so i look behind me and i realize there's no blood on the stairs there's nothing behind me so he went into that bedroom and but while he was going into that bedroom i stood up and i was firing more trying to keep that cover off of him so he could get in get out safely so once i realized i was like okay he's gone i get back down in the stairwell and i'm laying there and i'm just like okay there's no blood i gotta get him like he's got kids, he's got a wife, he's got a family. He's not, we're not leaving without him. And I'm sitting there and I'm just toying with this, like, how do I get back up there? So I'm crawl, I try to crawl back up and it's just like, pop, 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 pop. so I crawl back down and I'm just like, how am I going to do this without getting shot again? Right. And I crawl back up again and it's pop, 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 pop. And so I'm like, this man sees me. Like he knows where I'm at. He knows I'm in the stairwell is what I'm thinking in my head. But I'm like, but I can't leave him. Like, and it's that toy of like, I've got to get him, but I can't get shot because I, then I'm in Nick's way to get out if he's alive. And he was just wildly shooting through the door yeah. at this point. Yeah. You, how, you know how many shots he fired? I have no idea. Okay. And still to this day, I haven't been really given the exact. I know it's over 50 is what the wow. press conference said. It was over 50 shots between everybody. Mm-hmm. So okay. I don't know how many he fired versus Nick versus me versus Chris, but... I know that the press release said over 50 shots were fired in the house. And okay. like the detectives that went on scene had said that have been to Iraq, have been to a Fallujah, have dealt with all that stuff, had said it looked like a freaking firefight from Iraq. Oh, it was a firefight. Yeah. 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 So how did you get him out of that? How, how did so he ultimately get out I, of that room? I'm sitting in the stairwell and Chris and I'm yelling to the guys downstairs. I'm like, Nick is up here. We need your help. We need your help. You need to get up here. And they're, you know, they're trying to, you know, create a react team as best they can with the minimal amount of people that are on scene. And they're, you know, and I can hear in my ear, like I can hear all these people trying to get there, but I'm like, you got to get up here. You got to get up here. You got to get up here. So they start to push their way up the stairs. And that's when Chris gets shot in the top of the head. And I just see this gush of blood and I'm like, all right. And that's when I had to make this split second decision of I stay in the stairwell and I get shot and I die and I'm in Nick's way if he's alive or I leave and give him a path of least resistance. Okay. And it was hard. And it was the biggest, like, moment of, like, I'm abandoning my brother. I'm abandoning, you know, that was my FTO. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm abandoning my guy. Like, I can't do this. And so I run down, you know, I get out, I get down the stairs, and I'm, you know, I scream over the radio. I'm like, Nick is still inside. Nick is still inside. Okay. You know, because it just, that panic of, like, I can't believe I just left him. Right. At that point, the your physical injury, were you able, I mean, the pain, was was it starting to set no. in at that so point? No, so it wasn't starting to set in until I got Chris into my patrol vehicle. Mm-hmm. 
And then I realized like my breathing was starting to like be labored and my medic brain was like, you have a collapsed lung. You're starting to like, it's starting to, the effects are starting to kick in. Mm-hmm. You're about to, you know. Your adrenaline is wearing off. Oh yeah. And I was like, uh, so I, but in my head, I was still like stuck on Nick is still in that house. I can't leave. So I took Chris because of the head injury. And I'd seen it as a medic where people have been shot in the head and then, you know, two minutes later die. And I was like, I'm not letting him die in the street. Right. I can't let my brother die in the street. So I grabbed him, put him in my car, and I drove around the corner. And I said, stay in my car. I'll be right back. Oh, yeah. and by the way, as oh, she's yeah. grabbing ah. him, putting him in her car, the bad guy's shooting out the window at her patrol car, yeah, which is pat- completely shot to hell. So, Oh, he just oh. turned out the window. Oh, yeah. Shooting oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. He was real mad. So, yeah. so there's that, too. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you're taking and Nick, he was still, he was still. Yeah. So, and he used his training, military training, police training, and he heard the shots were further away. And he said, that's my moment to bounce. So he ran down and then little did I realize he's then turning around as he sees me getting peppered. He's using his one arm to try to give us cover so we can get out. So Nick is outside at this point. And I just didn't upstate. know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah I didn't know yeah. that at the yeah. time. Yeah. So it was actually kind of good that bad guy was shooting at Jackie's car because that gave Nick the, the opportunity to get out because he knew that the, the direction flow of the bullets were going away from from where he could run past that door and get out. So. That's interesting, though. That, I mean, yeah, that he actually could tell just uh, with, yeah. with all the gunfire that it was further away that the guy was on the move somewhere in that, other than where yeah. he was initially yeah. shooting yeah. from. Yeah. So... How did what goes on now? How did this? So I go, I leave Chris in the car, and my sergeant is flying up, obviously, and so is the day shift sergeant. And they're like, "Where's everything at? Where's everything at?" And you know, and I'm still like, "Nick is still inside. We gotta go." And then I hear them saying, "He's out. He's out. He's running back." And there's actually a video on YouTube of Nick running away from the house. Wow. Towards my sergeant and me, because I'm in my head, and this is where like that messed up fight or flight comes into play. I, I was going back in that house one way or the other. And in my head, I was I was going up those stairs and I was going to take 20 bullets if it helped mm-hmm. get him out. You know, and that was my messed up brain of like, I've got to get in there. I, I left him. I'm I'm a piece of crap person, you know, and that's that's where all the trauma started to build up that moment. But really, you're in it until it's over. Yeah. And you just have to make choices yeah. in the moment yep. of what the best option is. Because sometimes you have crappy option A yeah. and crappy option B, yeah. and you just got to choose which one. Yeah. yeah. And you only have a split second to make that decision. Yeah. And, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. You can look back and second guess yourself. Oh, yeah. And we are great at second guessing oh, ourselves. Yeah. And the public's great at second guessing so ourselves. Those are but yeah. you know i mean at the time you had to make a decision you made a decision yeah and him running up to me and then it was hey take the cop hat off and now it's medic brain and now i've got to fix his arm and get him and get him stabilized and because he's the most hurt out of everybody and so he's laughing because i'm sitting there twisting this tourniquet on and he's like where were you shot and i said in the lung because all my brain is thinking is your lung is collapsing just stop thinking about it and you'll be fine well all that comes out is i got shot in the lung so he's like what are you doing stop helping me we need to look at you and so then it's strip your stuff off look over here so you see me on the side of the road in this body cam just stripping and my sergeant is stripping my shirt literally almost off of me trying to see where i got shot and once they realized, oh, it didn't actually like penetrate all the way through. Okay, now you can go back and help Nick again. Right? You're like, hey, you got two lungs. Yeah, one's okay. Be all right. Yeah. Yeah. 
So how did this wrap up with the, the suspect and, uh, and what damage did he do up there that, that, uh, that you know of? Um, I mean, I know that there, that it was just a lot, a lot, a lot of bullets went mm-hmm. flying, things like that. Um, I know there was a lot of property damage from yeah. my understanding, um, but it ended up being an 18 to 20 hour standoff. Oh, okay. Where, to a barricaded person. Yeah. Okay. So our negotiators, which I was part of the team, uh, they were on the phone with him and they were working and working and working And the negotiator that was on the phone. He's just one of those people. Like once he gets to know somebody, he can kind of start to talk to him. He's just, he flows so well. And so BJ's talking to him and talking to him and talking to him. And it ends up being this, by the end of it, he's released both of his young siblings first. And then him and mom come out, no issues, no nothing. Nobody gets hurt, you know, at the end of the day. Thank God. She, I mean, she, I was wondering if, if she was injured. Nope, the, okay. nobody got injured no kids nobody got police. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah except for us but you know what at the end of the day that was like when i realized how like because they said kids but it just in your head you mm-hmm. don't know but when they finally come over to you at the hospital and they tell you how old these kids are and they tell you like different things and you just you start to have like this guilt and then you start to do the whole oh my gosh i fired and like what if it hit one of them what if this happened what if that happened and you start to like just tear yourself up about is everybody okay in there Wow. So it started going through hell and then it ended peacefully. Yeah. Thank God. Oh, yeah. So you started second guessing yourself like on even scene. In the ho- on scene. On scene. Even in the hospital, you're second guessing yourself. Everything, everything was just, oh, did I do this right? Could I have done this differently? What could I have done better? What could I have done? You know, where could I have taken things better? Okay. And it was just, it was automatic. And so we know that you called Tanya. Oh, no, Tanya called me. Tanya, that's right. <laughs> Tanya called you at the hospital. So but- I've been notified that this is going on. And I'm like, maybe she's on nights and she's asleep. And I'm just going to call her and wake her ass up. But then probably not because she's always in the, in the thick of everything, right? So Sounds I call. Like I know. And, and so peer support's activating. I'm activated. So I call and a deputy from Williamson County Sheriff's Office answered her phone. And he said, hey, this is who it is. And he goes, I'm here with Jackie at the hospital. She's fine. I saw your name on her on her caller ID. She's, you're the only call I'm going to answer just because I know it's you. And I said, awesome. So she's fine. He said, yes. I said, and at this point, nobody knew the status of the other two. And I said, are the other two critical or are they stable? And, he's, and he yelled to the nurse, is anybody critical? And she yelled, no, everybody's fine. So, <laughs> well, thank God. So it's really kind of cool because I could call the PD and let them know that everybody was stable, right? Good. But that was that was the first call. Yes. And then the second call, <laughs> Jackie calls me. Yes. And high, uh, high as hell on pain medicine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was going to be interviewing her for the culture book the next day. And the first thing she, th- she said is, hey, we're supposed to have that interview tomorrow, but can we do therapy instead? I was like, yes. Yeah, <laughs> so, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And then I, I said to her, I said, hey, can I, can I swing by your house and get your husband and bring him up there? And she said no. And I knew then at that point that we were facing not just this incident, we were facing a lot. Like just, I could tell by the way she said no. And I was like, oh, here we go. Like we've got, we've got some mountains to climb together and here we go again. Right. And so I laugh now. Yeah. Before y'all not so mountain fun. climbers. So. Yeah. The issues compounded. Yeah. yeah. So. Oh yeah. So what did y'all do? So I got, uh, 
I was in the hospital and they were like, hey, you know, we're going to go get your husband. And I was like, no, it's fine. He just had surgery for a hernia. He's got asthma. COVID's high, blah, 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 blah. I was like, just don't. No, don't worry about it. I've already called him. I already told him I'm fine. I'll see him at the house. Like, y'all can take me home. I'll see him at the house. And they were like, no, no, no. We're going to go get him. We're going to go get him. We're going to go get him. And finally, they brought him in. And I was just and I was in the middle of talking to one of the guys from APD that I worked with when I was in Austin. And he just gives me this like look and he's just pissed and i was like you know the hell dude like (laughs) like and it you know and then he's like who's that guy who's that and i was like i used to work with him like calm down like you know so we have some controlling behavior yeah and yeah oh by the way you know your wife's been shot Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. and so i get a couple of the medics that have come up to the hospital because obviously you know room you know the word spreads quickly Mm -hmm. so i was like hey and so i tell him hey can you go outside for a second i grab one of the medics and i was like melissa take him to the ems room and just keep him occupied i just i can't deal with this right now i didn't want him here to begin with like we we've got our own issues at home and i didn't need this too so i was like and this is just adding to like the stress of like the attorneys coming in and out you got ia coming in and out you've got doctors coming in and out you've got all this stuff going on and i was just like i didn't need the home stress to now be compiled with the work stress yeah intertwine yeah so you're you're getting through all that and you just start realizing i need i need some tanya time yeah right yeah um i really want to go back to how y'all how you first got in touch with tanya and you you started working with tanya can you talk about that how y'all met and and how y'all's relationship and and her therapy has played a just vital role in your your entire personal and professional life yeah so i'd known about tanya from ems because obviously she started a lot of everything down i think everything actually Mm -hmm. take that back not a lot of it all of it Um, all the peer support all of it um but i knew about it and then i knew that the pd had her as a person as a contact and things like that but it was that like hey it's now may june again and you know, July is coming and, you know, I'm starting to notice the same patterns of anger and irritable and not wanting to be at work and just every little thing sets me off and every little thing is pissing me off and, you know, or I'm being proactive, but I'm literally writing a ticket, you know, or I'm doing stuff that I normally like outside of my normal. And I'm starting to realize like it's now bleeding into my professional life where I'm like, Hey, this is not okay. Like my irritability is not okay at work. Like I need to get this squared away. So you became self-aware and yeah. recognized it, right? Well, that's, and then that's, that's when that's, I said, that's a big step. That's when I'm sitting in this parking lot and I'm just like, all right. And it was hard. Cause I was like, I now have to admit I need help. And I have to admit that I need to actually like see somebody. And I'm like, I wrote the email and I deleted it. And then I wrote it and then I deleted it and I wrote it and I deleted it. And finally I was like, send and then like just this wave of like relief kind of went came over me and i was like all right you know it'll probably be like a week or two like she's a busy lady like she, you know I'm, I'm literally it was i think it was like 20 minutes later i got an email <laughs> back like these are the appointments i have when when do you want to come in and i was like now can i come on shift yeah, we respond quick here because <laughs> we know every time someone picks up the the phone and leaves a message or sends an email, they've they've picked up the phone a thousand times or started that email five hundred times. So we turn we turn calls and emails around super fast because we want to we want to pull up people in while they're still while they're wanting still to wanting it. to get help. Yeah, so it's easy to back yeah. out. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. 
oh I'm, yeah and yeah. that was it like i mean and i'm sure and i mean thinking back i'm sure i wrote the email probably 10 15 times and just never sent it but yeah sitting in that parking lot i remember to this day i was there on south bell over by the ymca and i had backed in and i went nah i'm all right i don't need help i'm good like i got this and i was like no woman you know you need it like you know because and then i pick up my ticket writer and i'm like yeah i've done a lot of stops today and i've given a lot of tickets yeah no no i uh, you know and it finally hit since and but it was a wave of like relief of like you know mm-hmm. i can finally just let kind of some of this like stress go it's the first step yeah it's like you know those aa people that are like you know the first step to admitting you're in alcoholic is admitting you need help and we are incredibly great as a profession at not being self-aware no. i mean i can't tell you how many officers i talk to that just cannot look at themselves i mean you can look uh, at everybody else because that's your oh, job yeah. but you cannot look at yourself and figure out what's going on mm-hmm. so you send it and then the actual work begins you want to talk about the work or you want me to talk about the work? You talk about the work. Well, it's, it's your work. <laughs> You're the one that did it all. Yeah. I just sat there and was like, follow my finger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So just like most of our patients, you know, she came in um, good, good uh, in terms of like not heavy drinking going on and, you know, and just working out and doing her best. And her resilience was okay. Not fabulous, but good in terms of we could move to EMDR quickly. Um, obviously when people are so low in their resilience or they're drinking copious amounts of alcohol, we have other work to do first. So we move quickly. Um, I was excited to help her because I'd worked with so many people who were in Fallujah. So I felt a, a good connection. And, uh, so we did EMDR pretty quick and she responded and just knocked it out of the park, had good fading. Um, we've really, we started with the image of, um, his legs when she found him hanging and had excellent fading and really was able to move through a lot in terms of a relationship with her mom and you know all the stuff that happened in the aftermath and so we had we had done that work as our foundation which yeah. is pretty awesome can, can you describe to the listener what emdr is Could, yeah okay. so it's my favorite thing to do mm-hmm. um it's it's called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing and what it does is it mimics rapid eye movement that you do in your sleep cycle but you're awake and alert it's not hypnosis um you have complete control and what we do in replicating the rapid eye movements while you pull up a traumatic moment thought image um, is that w- when we, we replicate the, the rapid eye movements, actually I put a, a light on my finger and have, and I, go, I take the, the eyes bilateral left, right. And in doing that, what happens is it, it forces the frontal lobe of the brain to open the synapses and move the trauma to your long-term memory. The difference between a trauma and a bad memory is trauma stays trapped in your frontal lobe and will trigger you forever. But a bad memory can move, we can move it to your memory. And a bad memory is just that we pull it up, we push it back, but it doesn't trigger you. And so the key is, is that we move it to your long-term memory and you'll never forget it. But what happens is people can now work through it. And it's, it's, it's another part of their life instead of being like the core thing in their life. And so that's where we want the trauma is just one of the many things, good, bad, otherwise in your life versus, versus kind of being the center of your universe in this moment that just catches you in time and won't let you go. It's not present anymore. Exactly. It's something that you can remember, right. not live through. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I get questioned a lot about EMDR mm-hmm. um, from officers all the time. I've done it with three different therapists and it's different every time because you can have your finger, you mm-hmm. can have like a stimulus. And I've even, there's some people that have the electrodes kind of between your hands mm-hmm. and people think it's the goofiest thing mm-hmm. when you explain it to them. And when a therapist has explained it it's to them do. and they're like, there's no way that makes no sense. And it's stupid. Um, but it is an incredibly evidence-based um, 
technique. Absolutely. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So it was started, it started in the 1990s and the lady who discovered it, um, she sort of stumbled on it. And I thought it was complete bullshit when I first heard about it. I'm it like, dumb. yeah, it I'm like, that's so stupid. That's dumb. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's voodoo. That's somebody's way to make money. And, you know, I went to training is that my first day of training was the day of the Oklahoma City bombing. And two weeks later, the first person I did it on was an Oklahoma City firefighter who, you know, he found what was left of the daycare in that Murrah building. And he was really traumatized. And uh, I watched this transformation and he did amazing his whole career. He retired a few years ago with zero problems. Right. So we use it preventatively now. We used to just tr- treat trauma, you know, like PTSD. Reactive. With it. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. But now we hit it like as, as quickly as possible. So I tell all of our patients, like what we want is that by seven days post incident, that that event is really starting to fade and 14 days post incident and spanked in your long term memory. And if it's not at 14 days, we want people to get help. But, you know, I've done it as quickly as, you know, two to three days post incident. Um, because why wait? Why let people <clears throat> suffer? So if you're, if you're getting semi-decent sleep, we can do EMDR on you. So something else that I talk to people about is people kind of want to go to therapy and it's be this magic cure-all. Yeah. And therapy <laughs> is so hard. If you are doing it right, if I always say if it's easy, you're not doing it right. Right. Because there, if, you, if it's easy, you're probably not hitting what you need to hit. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're really supposed to be confronting things that are difficult to confront. But it's this safe area with this person that you feel safe with mm-hmm. and that you can confront these things in a measured, controlled manner and work through it because the only way over trauma is through it. You can't avoid it. Right. Right. Absolutely. And that's every, every, you know, every patient who comes in, that's our goal is to create that safe environment where they can dig in and, and tackle those demons. It's not easy, you know, and then we give homework and, you know, we, we hold people, <laughs> we hold people accountable. I don't watch TV. Yeah. <laughs> so Jackie, so, so when she first did your, uh, first EMDR session, can you describe that? And, and, what you thought during it and then after it? I mean, during it, obviously, it was a lot of, you know, the emotions, the struggle of, like, trying to, you know, deal with these memories and realizing how much trauma was actually bagged up and ready to go. And then going home and being like, all right, it's a sigh of relief, but I slept for, like, I think 20 Mm -hmm. hours. Mm -hmm. And it was just, like, this deep, deep, like, probably the deepest sleep I had had in a long time. And I was like, wow, okay, you know, and then I kind of thought, all right, well, you know, I slept really good. Maybe that was all it did, you know, you know, it's fine. Did it unlock any kind of like dreams, weird dreams? I didn't dream at all. Okay. That whole 20 hour, I was, I was out. This is your first session. Yeah. Just Mm -hmm. one. I was just out like, and you know, in the next couple of days, like I slowly started to realize like, Hey, my motivation's back. Like I'm kind of feeling a little bit better. Like I'm laughing and joking at work, laughing and joking at home, not little piddly things aren't setting me off anymore and i'm like okay like maybe this did something like it's not just some weird voodoo crap that you know somebody's you know thought up on a piece of paper yeah you know and i was like all right you know and then i keep going and like things are progressively starting like i'm emotionally starting to feel better like i'm able to tackle like conflicts at home conflicts at work like without feeling like i'm just overwhelmed and just this big weight is on me and i'm like wow okay, this stuff really does work. Okay, it's not just some weird voodoo that somebody put on a piece of paper and said, hey, this works. How long do you think, and I, you know, officers really want this, like, quick fix sometimes, and people are like, I don't want to spend the next two years in therapy before I get any kind of results or whatnot. How long do you think it really took of doing 
EMDR for you to start really kind of feeling, I mean, other than obviously the initial feel better, how long do you think it took for you to kind of get to like a more normal four or five months? Cause I was still coming in weekly and, or every two weeks, mm-hmm. I, we gradually like kind of like every, every week, every two weeks kind of after, and then spaced it out. I think it was October, mm-hmm. November. So it was a couple months. Tanya, did you continue the EMDR every time she came in, or how, how do you do that? No, so this is, I'm really happy I'm old, because I was trained, <laughs> I, you know, I was trained in 95, and back then, um, EMDR was not really accepted as a legitimate practice, and it was this new thing, and health insurance like was like, we're not paying for that voodoo. And so I was actually taught by the ATF clinician who was at Waco. Uh, oh, wow. And so the, what they did is, back then, they taught us like one and done. So the thing I like about the way I was taught, and I actually reteach um, all of my therapists to do this, is it's, it's actually in the advanced protocol now. It's for complex trauma. And what we do is when we open, we open the box, we hit everything. Whatever's coming out is coming out. And so our EMDR sessions are two to three hours. And we clean it up, right? By the next week, people know, our patients know if there's anything else they need to clean up or if, uh, if they're good to go. So we do this intensive model and I like it better for our first responders and veterans because if at like 45 minutes, I'm like, well, okay, so we're going to have to wrap up today, Mm -hmm. you know, because I I only have an hour with you. And which is of course what happened when health insurance started to pay for EMDR, they only want to pay for one hour a week. So they're like, bring it down to one issue or one topic, you know, but my goodness, you know, last weekend I was in Puerto Rico working with a CBP agent and that, that Pandora's box box opened and two and a half later, we were done, you know, two and a half hours later. And so, um, so the thing is, is that when you shut someone off at 45 to 50 minutes, oftentimes what they'll, they'll tell us is they sat in the parking lot for another 45 to 50 minutes, just, just kind of vibrating and triggered and, you know, and so we, we only do that style of EMDR here. And so when we can clean it up and I know it's, it's a lot, she slept 20 hours. Yes. But, but the relief is instant. And when you process all that trauma and you get on with your life, like, and, and our first responders, they do want that quick fix. And that's about as quick as I can give it, yeah. you know? And it I mean, and it was definitely like, you felt better. Like you felt like that weight was relieved, but it was like, I'm sure it was exhausting too. Though. Oh yeah, yeah, it was like I mean to open up everything and just like download it all and then be like, all right, go to bed. But you know that that relief of like that next day of waking up and being like, wow, it's a lot better. And then just seeing the change of how it's going, like how it progressed in my like emotional state was even better in my opinion. Just seeing like, hey, you know, six months ago I was like pissed off, angry, bitter at the world, and now I'm like. All right. Like life hope, is good. Hope. Yeah, life is hope. good. Life is great. Like no issues. So after you had the first session of the MDR and then you you turned in a Rip Van Winkle and then Pretty much. so yeah. So <laughs> what was it like after that? Go back for regular sessions with yeah. With Tony, so, kind of report back. Yeah, or, or it was for me. I think. I, I mean, I'm sure she does it differently for everybody, but mm-hmm. for me, it was that good like follow up of like, hey, are, you know, how's everything going? And then just kind of like re hitting some of like the, you know, I mean, I always joke like therapy is like the the one person you can bitch to and they can't tell you, you know, get out of my face or leave me alone. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was for me, it was my weekly bitch session and I could go in and just kind of feel better in general. But I realized like, hey, like there's a lot less stuff that I'm really needing to really be pissed off about or irritated about or this or that because, you know it's not really bothering me anymore because I've dealt with all the issues that were kind of pushing that and making that like a hot button for me when it really wasn't that big of a deal. Is that normal, Tanya? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Big time. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what we want, what we want to see. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
So I had my I had EMDR uh, session. It was after July seventh, and I did it with one of our Sissy uh, Officer Foundation counselors, Dottie Claggett. Shout out, Dottie. She's she's incredible. Um, and so I I knew of an injury to one of my friends that the, he he it was killed out there, and I. I knew a specific injury to his hand. I had heard about it. Uh, I didn't want to hear about it, but I heard about it uh, from the body cam. And I remember we had, I was one of the pallbearers, so we had to go sit at, and sit at the wake for four hours of, of that mm. in open casket. Mm. And I remember trying to go up to the casket and quickly get past. But when I got up there, I focused on the hand because I knew what hand it was. And I was trying to see where the injury, but they had, you know, the... They put it back together. Yeah. yeah. And, and I could not tell, but I was focusing on that. And that kind of came out in, in my session. Yeah. Yeah. It was terrible. Yeah. You really never know what's going to come out. No. Yeah. It's, just, it's yeah. like a hot, and it's a hot too, because oh, yeah. you never know what associations you're going to make. Absolutely. And all of a sudden you're like laughing and then you're crying. Yep. And then, oh, yeah. yeah. The beautiful thing about EMDR is your brain has a mental map of where it knows it needs to go in order to heal. And it just goes there and it saves just months and months and months of talk therapy. Like your brain just says, let me do this for you. And it goes where exactly where you need to go all the time. Cause we are incredibly not self-aware. Yeah. <laughs> so if you just let it go, <laughs> exactly. it works better. So you're in your therapy with, with uh, Jackie. Can you talk about what progress did you see immediately that she exhibited. I mean, like you've seen so many different type of first responders and you've seen, I'm sure you've seen very quick progress, Mm -hmm. slow progress. Mm -hmm. What were your initial thoughts on that? She was quick. She was, she processed really well. Um, you know, she's young and resilient. And so she had really, really good results. And what I noticed is that she started to really push other Cedar Park officers to come in. Good. And, you know, a lot of officers were like, Jackie told me to come. So here I am. So <laughs> it was good. It was really good. And then, you know, I saw her like expand to the negotiator role and the, 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 the mental health, the CIT role and, and really truly just start to, to flourish and uh, really get her, sink her teeth into stuff that isn't super easy to do given her history but because she recovered so well you know here she is onto that you know that paying it forward yeah yeah no because you saw the the you witnessed and you felt the you felt it firsthand right Mm -hmm. and you're in in your recovery i I gotta say being you being self-aware is that's incredible it really is i almost want to thank that to my dad because i think that's who pushes me to be like that's what pushes me to be so self-aware is I look at how far he went down the rabbit hole. And I always tell myself like, don't get that. Don't get to that point. Don't get to that point. Don't get to that point. So Tanya's talked about your resiliency before that. And you know, we can do EMDR after and everything after fantastic that we have. But I think that having resiliency factors and having a lot of resiliency before an incident can help okay. and prevent trauma. What kind of resiliency factors did you have before that? I think a lot of it is just being self-aware and also not, not being afraid to say, Hey, I need, I need to take it. I need to take a knee. Like, Hey, I'm done. Like I need to tap out for a little bit and then, you know, get myself squared away. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, as hard as it is to, in this profession to admit, Hey, I need a minute, and, you know. Well, a lot of first responders, I'm sorry. A lot of first responders, they have to have that rush to mask 
what they're going through. Oh, Tony, yeah. Tony, do, you, do you see a lot of that? All the time. Uh, All the time. If they don't have it, yeah. and you see a lot, because I've, I've been injured uh, quite a few times, and I had a lot of downtime where I was off work, and depression. Mm-hmm. I did not have that rush of mm-hmm. the job. So that, that's pretty prevalent, what you've seen? Absolutely. Yeah, that's something that's, that's why I always encourage people to come in before they retire. Cause they need to get ready for that. Cause it's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's not easy. It is not easy going from 90 to nothing. So. Uncomfortable with baseline. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that one thing we don't talk about a lot is even if you're, despite, you know, critical incidents or whatnot, anytime an officer gets injured and is stuck at home or it's incredibly isolating mm-hmm. yeah. and it can be because life goes on for everybody else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're at home for a year, you're at home for a few weeks, I don't know how long you were at home after, but it can be really isolating and difficult to deal with. And that's another level um, of something that you have to deal with in recovery. So I got the one thing I will say is I got blessed that the two guys that were involved in the critical incident months before mine, um, the department was actually really good about letting them come back like to, you know, come to briefing or come to dispatch or come just like be around. So you didn't feel like you were isolated at home or you weren't like allowed to be around everybody. So I was, you know, I would go over there, you know, I worked two to two. So I'd go over around like midnight and go work out and go hang out with, you know, Sarge and corporal or, you know, go see the guys and be like, Hey, how's everything going? Or go into dispatch and go, you know, BS with them for a few minutes and then go home. So it didn't feel like I necessarily lost that ability to have like your comrades or your guys around you because you could still go up there and see them. And having that social support is oh, really important yeah. in yeah. recovery. Oh, yeah. yeah. So did, did your department have a, um, a pretty good peer support? They do. Program oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it was a great peer support program. I mean, it was just, you know, constant people checking up on you. It was almost some days you were like, all right, leave me alone. I'm good. Like, just trust me. <laughs> Today's a sleep day. <laughs> Today's a sleep day. So I got to the point where I was like, like, just talk to this one guy. And if he says I'm good, I'm good. Like, I don't need 20 people checking up on me, you know. But and, it's nice to know they care, but oh, yeah, it can yeah. be overwhelming. Oh, yeah. You know? And it was, I mean, at the time it was overwhelming because it wasn't just this and then dealing with the investigation and dealing with this it was also in that same time span I found out that my ex had been cheating on me while I was at work it was on some dating websites and just so then I was going through the emotions of all right now I'm filing for divorce and I'm doing this and I'm you know and I just it was a whole flood of everything at once so here comes the here comes the here here comes the 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 stumble right so Jackie um she got shot she's got all the aftermath Um, and then she finds this out about her husband and here comes the divorce. And so, um, it was a, it was a very, very rocky time. It was absolutely, she scared the shit out of me really. Um, because everything was just hitting her and hitting her and hitting her and nothing seemed to be going well for her. So do you want to kind of talk about what happened after that? Yeah. So with that, you know, my ex had in the process of, Hey, we're done. We're over it. Like, this is the second time you've cheated. I'm done. I'm over it. Um, he had said, Hey, I'm going to kill myself, made these suicidal statements. So all within this time frame, I'm now getting him into there, like into the, um, inpatient facility working with CIT to try to get this all nailed out. At the same time, his parents are threatening me with a lawsuit because they say I illegally got him put in there and all this other stuff. We had already been on like the we were pretty much on the, the rocks at that point. I think we were both just trying to wait for our lease to be up to say that we're done. But 
you know, and then I find all this out and I'm like, all right. So while he's in there, I filed, I filed for divorce and I left. And so he came back and found out that I had filed and I was done and it just tripped him up even more to where he was just, you know, he was aggressive. He was yelling at me. Just every little thing was setting him off. And I was, you know, I finally was like, Hey, this person needs somebody needs me to watch their house for a week. I'm going to stay there for a week. This person needs this. I'm going to go there for a week just to avoid the conflict and the, you know, negativity and the anger and the issues. I just, I was like, I can't, we can't be in the same house. Well, there's a lot of people like that, that they actually feel and see controls being taken away. Right. And so then you start, they start pulling out the bigger cards and bigger guns and, you know, they're going to threaten, threaten suicide because they, know you and you're going to try to help right and it's yeah. going to keep you around longer and then the aggression because they're yep. they, they're getting pissed off because they have no longer they don't have control yeah. over you right it's so that's so common and he had actually his intent was to commit suicide with my service weapon and when i had told him i was done i had actually taken the ammo left the ammo at the house and i took the gun to my mom's and locked it up and left it at my mom's because I had like this gut feeling of something was about to spur off. And then when I found him at my mom's house, after he had made these suicidal statements, I knew he knew where, where everything was. And I knew he knew it was there. And that's when I was like, yeah, we're, this is becoming way too chaotic and way too crazy. And then he was calling me from the inpatient facility, like, Hey, they want to do group therapy and they want you to come in and this and this. And I'm on the phone with the therapist. Like, there's no way in hell. Like, I'm done. Like, I'm done, done. Like, there's no saving this. There's no nothing. Like, we're done. That's an incredibly difficult situation to get out of because you've known this person since you were 16. He was in his 20s. Yep. And you guys have been together for forever. And then he's starting to, you're already going through something really difficult. And then he's starting to threaten to commit suicide. And that gives you this whole guilt factor, this whole responsibility. Like, oh, crap, if I... Yeah. You know, if I go through with this, am, am I going to feel responsible yeah. for that? Yeah. So she's living like a nomad, right? <laughs> Staying house to house, wherever she could just get away from that. Her ammunition's in one place, her weapons in another. And then, of course, came the insomnia. Yes. So, and then it was insomnia. And then it was, hey, January came around. Uh, I had moved into a different place at that time. Uh, cleaned up the other apartment got rid of the keys, everything like that. But that apartment he had destroyed. He hadn't been taking the dogs out. He hadn't been doing this, hadn't been doing that. So I'm left with all these fees. So I'm trying to figure out how to pay these fees. I'm trying to figure out, you know, I went from two incomes to one as much as the second income wasn't a lot, but it was still money. And then it's like, okay, now I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to pay this, trying to pay that. Cause you know, I don't want to be in debt. I don't want to be, you know, filing bankruptcy. I'm a cop. I can't be doing this kind of stuff. You know, and I'm just, you know, struggling and struggling and struggling. So January, they go, hey, you're no longer on the mid-shift, you're on days. So this support system, this great, you know, sergeant, corporal, shift, everything that I had just got blown apart. Because now you're on a different shift, different supervisors, different people, different ways of doing things. And I just went from like zero and it like put the, literally it was like putting the gas pedal on of like, now it's no longer sleeping, no longer eating good i'm trying to like deal with the nightmares of now all of a sudden all these nightmares are starting to spur up from the shooting this guilt factor of like what is shoulda couldas starts to hit me and it's just it's like a fucking downward cycle of like this roller coaster is going down and i don't know if it's gonna stop 
more instability. Right? Oh yeah, just, right. At that point, did you realize uh, you go to the insomnia, and then and then yet another change? Yeah. Did, right. did you have to get back with Tanya and? and so I should have. Okay. okay. <laughs> and uh, I was like, no, I got this. I got this. I got this. You know, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. And it wasn't until the big end of February, beginning of March, I finally reached out to my corporal and I was like, my old corporal, I was like, I got to get something figured out. I was like, I'm not sleeping. There's like, you know, 15 energy drink cans in the bottom of my car from one shift and I should only have maybe one or two. I'm popping no dose, like it's going out of style. Like this is, I shouldn't be coming to work like this. He's like, well, get back with Tanya, figure out what you need to do. Like, I'll help you work out like the you know, the schematics of kind of trying to do this under the table where nobody knows about it, things like that. And so I did. We did what? One therapy session? I think. Before my, well, my we, big demise. Yeah. Well, we, <laughs> we started. Yeah. And then um, she was going to go see her physician. And I, I said, hey, ask him about trazodone and mm-hmm. uh, medication for nightmares. And he's like, whatever. And he gave him the Prozosin. And, and Prozosin, right. Yeah. Prozosin, which is for nightmares, which is the VA has discovered is very successful. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, whatever. And he gave you Ambien? What no, did he give you? He gave you something else. Gave me something else. Um, gave me that medication. And so I went to negotiations training Friday, picked up the pills, took them Saturday, or took them Friday night, slept great. Didn't have any nightmares. I was like, cool. Heck yeah. But it was my weekend off. Saturday, slept great. No worries. Saturday night into Sunday, or Sunday into Monday, I pop one, go to bed at 7, and I wake up, and full-blown, you know, sweat-covered clothes. Like, my whole entire sheets are, like, completely soaked. My heart rate was, like, 200. I'm looking on my watch because I was looking at my, like, heart rate. Mm-hmm. Like, 200. I'm like, great, here we go again. Like, this is starting all over again. Like, what, what is going on? And I was like, it's probably because I have to go to work tomorrow. Like, it's probably what's going on. Like, all right, you know what? I'm gonna go for a run, but before I go for the run, I'm just gonna take another sleeping med just so I can. Wow. Hopefully, it'll kick in by the time I'm done with my run, and I'll come home and I'll pass out. I come home, fall asleep on the couch for about five minutes, and I'm like, nope, still awake. What the heck? So I was like, all right, I'm gonna take it one more. Worst case, I'll just call out tomorrow. Go lay down, wake up five minutes later, same thing, and I'm like, this is not like this cannot be happening to me. Like I can't live like this. So then it was another one, fall asleep. Another, and then I start to like feel it. And I'm like, this is, I've taken too many. Like, this is not okay. This is, I, I've taken too many. I screwed up. I should have freaking made a phone call two hours ago when this was all starting. But I, you know, tried to self fix myself and I knew I screwed up. So I'm sitting in my patrol unit and I'm on the phone with my corporal and I'm just like, you got to come get me. Like I took too many sleeping pills. He's like, what did you take? And I told him and he was like, I'm on my way. But as I'm sitting there, I'm like, you know, I'm having this like struggle of like, I can't live like this. Like, I cannot be living like this with this guilty feeling. But and then the demons come in and they're like, you deserve it. You left him. You abandoned him in that house, you know, and then you're just you're fighting with yourself internally while you're all screwed up on these sleeping meds. And it's just this back and forth of like, no, this is where it should go. You should be feeling like this. You're a piece of crap. You should have done this. You should have done this. You should have done this. And then. We were talking one day and we both agreed, like it just hit us both. I think it's like if, if she had just been shot, everything would have been okay. But this divorce 
and all the games and all the stress and all the, the trauma and the drama. Manipulation. Was, it was yeah. awful, awful. Mm-hmm. Like she would have been fine if she had just been shot. And what a what a weird thing to say, right? But, <laughs> <laughs> but if I would have just gotten divorced or yeah. just gotten shot, yeah. I'd have been yeah. fine. But yeah, the but two the, of them the together. two of them yeah. together, it was this perfect storm. So, do you want to talk about what happened next? Yeah. So he picks me up, and at this point, I b- vaguely remember little bits and pieces of what had happened. Like I remember being in the emergency room. And vaguely remember it. And then I, because obviously at this point, this horse tranquilizer has started to kick in. And then I remember being back in my house. And I'm like, why am I, you know? And like, I remember my commander pushing me around the house, like trying to get me to pack a bag. And I'm like, where am I going? You know, in my head, I'm like, what is going on? Packing this bag. And then I end up waking up and I'm in some psychiatric facility, like completely locked out. And this is like, you know, three in the afternoon, I wake up. And I'm like, where hell am I I'm like I'm pissed and I'm like irritated because I'm like how did I get here like where did I go how did I get here like how did this happen and they're like hey you're gonna go talk to the the psychologist and debrief him on everything that's happened just tell him everything so I tell him and he's like look I don't think you would have been here and I don't think you would have gotten to this point had the doctor given you the trazodone and prazosin had you been given that you were doing fine with your therapist everything was going fine everything was going good I don't think you would have been here. I don't think this would have happened. So take the Prazodone Prazosin tonight. If you're good tomorrow morning, don't have any nightmares. You're good to get out of here. Like we're not keeping you here in this, like, cause it was some like first responder 30 day program type thing. Yeah. And he's like, you don't need to be here for 30 days. You have a therapist. You're doing everything the right way. You're doing everything. Had he given you the right medication right. to knock these nightmares out, you'd have been fine. Was it a primary care physician that gave yeah. you it? Well, of yeah. Of course. Of course. Yes. So... I did I text you or did I call you? I can't remember. I can't remember. I think I think you texted me. And I was like, "Hey, don't be mad or something to that." <laughs> don't be mad. Don't be mad. Don't no be one mad. pissed on you. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't cheat on you, Tanya. <laughs> but here's what happened, and she was like, "Whoa, yeah." So they they tried to put her in a in an intensive outpatient. That was kind of their like, oh, yeah. if we if we let you out, <laughs> yeah. They were like, you, you can only leave if you sign this paper that says you'll come here three days a week. Nah. And, but like the, the the psychologist was like, you you can do your thing, but like the program people were like, you have to sign this paper that says you will go to this this program and you will do this and you will do this. And I was like, whatever, like whatever I need to do, like to even, get out. Even yeah, the freaking doctor says I don't need to be here. Like, but okay, I'll sign what I need to sign. So I signed it and I start going to this program and it's supposed to, they alleged that I was being in this like first responder program and this one lady starts talking and she's a firefighter and I'm like, all right, cool. But then I look and this kid comes in and he's got a Black Lives Matter mask on. And I'm like, how do I talk? And he's talking about anti-police stuff. And I'm like, how do I talk about my issues? If and I'm going to be- summer of 2020. I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> how am I going to be yeah. able to even like speak about what's going on in my brain after being in a shooting- yeah. against yeah. a guy that is black i was mm-hmm. like how is this gonna even <laughs> yeah i was like i can't do this and so i'm like on the phone with her outside i'm like help get me out of here what do i need to do <laughs> so I made some phone calls and the program fixed that problem right away right. <laughs> i'm like are you like read the room right you know so they fixed that but what i did and this is a first is i took over her iop and so I'm like, all right, I'm taking over your IOP. You're going to see me three times a week. And it was, you know, my schedule's very full. So this mm-hmm. is our conversation. I'm flipping through my calendar. I'm like, can you come in on Monday at noon 
Wednesday at 3.30 and Saturday at 8.30 in the morning? And she's like, yep, I'll be there. (laughs) And the next week it was like Tuesday at 9 and Wednesday at 12 and then Friday at 2. And so, but I just basically plugged her in three times a week at any point, including weekends, just to make this happen for her. And we just basically got back to work. Oh, yeah. And we worked hard. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It was hard work. And it was like pouring salt in the wound, ripping the bandaid off every day. Yeah. What What did that look like? It was it was a painful experience to go from like, hey, you just you know came came close to like that would have been it for you mm-hmm. to now, hey, you made it through, you survived this. You need to get yourself back to where you used to be. You need to get your head screwed on straight. Like you cannot live this life of like guilt and anger and frustration and all this stuff. Like you need to get back to where you were. And so it was, it was every day or every day coming in, talking to her, you know, hashing out every little thing that's been going on, everything with my ex, everything that little thing that could come up. I was like, here it is, here it is, here it is, here it is. And just making sure that I was dealing with it going home. I was like journaling, which, you know, who does that? I've done, hey, hey, I've done it. You know, but it was like, it was getting those emotions out and those frustrations and those anxieties and realizing like, oh man, I really do have like a lot of things I need to work through. Like one of them, like one of the things I did was I took a, like wrote a letter to my dad and was like basically mm-hmm. pinning like all the issues that I had and like, you know, basically telling him I forgive him for everything that I went through with him. And that was really eye opening to go like, oh wow, I really do have a lot of anger towards my dad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it sounds like that that set a tone early on whenever whenever that incident happened with your father suicide that that in some ways has kind of been a cloud oh yeah and even with your ex don't because you 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 want to protect and save you don't want the finality to end up like that yeah right yeah and that was it was just every day trying to you know, work on being the best version of myself and working through all the issues and think things that were coming up and, you know, getting back to working out again and like being, you know, one thing I realized was I was very much a people person mm-hmm. and I was putting everybody first. It was every little thing, any person that wanted something I was, I would drop and I was gone, drop and I was gone. Except Jackie. Except for myself. Mm-hmm. And I was putting myself at the very end. And that was one thing that I really worked on over that time frame was putting myself first and going, Hey, no, sorry, I can't come and help you with this. I'm going to the gym. I'm doing what I need to do for myself. Well, that goes back to when you were 16 and you're taking care of yeah. everyone and that yeah. imprints itself. And that's how you deal with things yeah. from then on. And you've never really learned how to take care of yourself and that you can say, Hey, I need to take care of myself and still not be a bad person yeah. and still not be a bad friend. Like you're oh, yeah. still helping people, but you're making sure you're okay. Oh yeah. And it was, it was very much a very hard mind shift, but it was the best thing I could have ever done for mm-hmm. myself mm-hmm. of you need to fix yourself at ground level. Like start, start small and work your way up, work your way up, work your way up, work your way up. And the other thing we did is, you know, we worked on just, just be single, just, just be yes. single. Even just, though I yeah. like, I totally failed at that for yeah. a hot minute. That's I was okay. like, yeah. you know, and I was like, Hey, so I did go on a date and I did. And then I started to realize like the caliber of people I was picking. And I was like, nah, you right. You right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I need to be single. You right. Well, you have to get right with yourself yeah. before oh, yeah. you can get right with someone else. Oh yeah. Absolutely. And then lo and behold, I found 
Mr. Right. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I know. This is wonderful. Uh-huh. It yeah. is good. It's really, and he's really good. He's he's amazing. So yeah. Man, is she saying yeah. that? Uh, yeah. 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 Shout out. Mm-hmm. Tanya, one of your many books is smashing the stigma, and there's a portion of it that you interviewed Jackie Q. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So the book yeah, it came out of 2020. Um, because it was such a desperate time for all public safety. And I really just wanted to lay out why we have stigma, how we get rid of it, why we still have this taboo of getting help and public safety and how to get, how to get rid of that. And I, I, in writing this book, it's actually my favorite book. Um, I actually picked a lot of officers and dispatchers and uh, fire and EMS to interview. And um, they're all very, very forthcoming about going through trauma and getting help. And one of the things that I point out in this book is that um, when leaders recognize that an employee who who stumbles and gets help or who struggles and gets help, they actually make the best employees because they reach this amazing thing called post-traumatic growth. And post-traumatic growth is when people can look at the situation and they can look at that situation and understand that this was not pleasant and they wouldn't wish it on anyone, but it has made them better, stronger, and wiser. And those are the employees that then look out for others. They see the burnout in, in their other, other officers and they see the, the strain and the stress and they're the ones who are open and they encourage them to get help. And so people who have gotten help tell me all the time, if there's ever a way I can tell my story to help someone else get help. And this book is just full of those stories and full of vignettes and interviews and, and so on. And, um, and so I just, I was so grateful to have her interview um, obviously it wasn't the day after she was shot because we had to do some other things first, but the fact that she was able to rally and come back and even do the interview for this book, which was the, you know, really focused on what happened with her dad. Um, it was, it was such a testament to who she truly is and, and how many people in this book just pay it forward. So I'm, I'm just thrilled that she was able to do it. And, um, and Jackie is by far one of the most valuable officers you can ever have because, you know, she sees it in others. She sees the, she sees the strain, she sees the burnout and she, she now has that conversation like, Hey, I did it. You can do it. And a lot of times when there's that challenge, you know, if someone tells me, well, I did it, you can do it. I'm going to be like, yeah, I can do it. I can do it better than you. <laughs> so that's, that's what she does these days. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, I like the, I like about the book is that you're actually getting real life first responders that have had life experiences before they were first responders like Jackie. And then it shows how the job and the weight of the job and the weight of the badge, it, it weighs you down and it causes you, it could cause you to crumble. Right. Right. And on this podcast, that was one of the, that's the, where the idea came from watching first responders tell their stories. Everybody's got a story, right? And Jackie's got a lot of stories and, <laughs> and Jackie's, uh, incredibly brave to be so forthcoming about her struggles because there is a stigma. you the name of the book is smashing the stigma. Why is there such a stigma, which from what you've seen in all years, years of experience, with first responders coming forward. So in chapter one, I talk about how, um, that, you know, in the, in the 1950s, everything was very taboo. Like mental health issues were very taboo and you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest and you know, those horrible state hospitals with the gnarly oak trees and the iron gates. I worked at yeah. Terrell state mental <laughs> yeah. hospital. So and it's like, it. it's like they do that on purpose. They make mm-hmm. it just look like a haunted house. Shutter Allen. Yeah. 
And so, um, so then, you know, in the, in the eighties, nineties, counseling and therapy and mental health came a long way and it was more readily recognized and understood and treatment modalities started to improve significantly. But the problem was, is that, well, the main, main general population of our country started to accept mental health and dealing with issues. There weren't therapists that were good at first responders. This is such an incredibly unique niche and for, for a, for a first responder to go to a therapist who doesn't understand what they do and they start talking and telling their story and their, the therapist jaw drops and they start crying and they're like, Oh my God, that's horrible. Or, Oh, what gosh, I'm so amazed at what you do. And they're in awe, you know, either way, whether they're crying or they're in awe, the, the first responders turned off. So they would leave and they'd be like, well, I'm never doing that shit again. Cause these people are quacks and they don't whatever. And so over time, the stigma has remained for public safety because there have been so few competent therapists to work with first responders. That is changing, um, but still, the horror stories of crappy therapists doing crappy things to first responders ha- has been very pervasive. And then you you have a bad experience, and that first responder tells ten, and each of those ten tell ten more. And so the word is that like you know you go to therapy and you're going to be diagnosed, you're going to be you know fit for duty, you're going to be you know they're going to cry, they're going to make you feel worse, you're going to walk out the door, it's going to it's not going to help, you know. And so so all these horror stories from from therapists who really didn't understand the public safety culture um, has perpetuated it. It's changing. It's slowly, slowly changing. We're getting there. Well, it's like riding a ship one inch at a time. I mean, it's a, that's a hard ship to, to turn around. Yeah, right? absolutely. And cultural competency. Can you, that is something that my department's kind of delving into. Can you explain why that's so important in the first responder world? You know, it's like you, you've got to read the room. Also, in, in the first chapter, I was talking about, I was working in the ER um, in downtown Austin for the first 10 years of my career. And this is, this cultural competency, it goes like this. We had a, a pediatric homicide um, and the nurses are, you know, maxed out and they're really stressed out about it. And I go on the, on the ambulance dock to check on the EMS crew. And as I'm walking up, I hear the FTO telling the young paramedic, to suck it up and don't cry. And if you cry, you're a pussy and you should not be doing this as I'm approaching the ambulance. And what I did is I turned around and I walked away because now is not the time. A lot of therapists would be like, Oh, Hey, let's talk about this. And then it explodes. Right? So at a later date, I caught the young medic and he came in for therapy. And at a much later date, I caught that FTO and he finally came in for therapy after many years. Now he brings us tamales every Christmas because he can't not bring us tamales because he loves us so much. Right. But you, know you have to know your audience you have to know it's like you know when when she was in the room with a with a guy with a with a face mask the the blm face mask Mm -hmm. it's like you you have to understand like what the fuck you're doing with these people and if you don't you shouldn't be doing it because they'll turn you off forever and and how you get the cultural competency i write about this in all of my books is you have to go right along you have to go you have to go visit the stations you have to understand what they do how they talk what they believe what their values are and, and then the best ways to get into their hearts and minds. Because it's different. It is. Yeah. I, I hate when I talk to officers and they've gone to like one therapy session and had just a terrible experience. Yeah. And it is so important. I tell people to find the right therapist because if you don't have the right therapist, it's right. not going to work. Oh, so yeah. cultural competency, personality, type of therapy, what mm-hmm. people specialize in. It's so important to find somebody that you click with. And yeah. if you go and you don't click with a person... Don't find another one, yeah. you but know, don't and it's, write it off. it's not going to hurt the, it's not going to hurt the therapist feelings. If it does, then 
They need to work on some therapy. They need to work on some things. It's really important to find the right therapist. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the other thing is like when, when I talk about taking over Jackie's IOP, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm like, screw that. You're not going back there. I mean, it's almost like this mother moment, but this very strong therapist moment. Like I, I, I refuse to let you fail. I refuse to let you suffer. I refuse, I refuse to see you struggle any more than you have and not do everything that I can to help you through this. And I think that, that, you know, any good therapist is going to be that way for their patients. But if they're not, you, you can't handle the velocity of what a first responder brings when you walk in the door. I mean, you have to be willing to, to get up and, and do these, do these weird things like what I do and, and be there and, and take over f- to help them. You know, it's just the way it is. Well, there's a lot of therapists that just go down a checklist, mm-hmm. right? And that right. you cannot do that with a first responder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not that smart of a person, but I know that that does not, that approach doesn't work. Right. Absolutely. And every single first responder is different. Of course. Absolutely. And every one of the different experiences, life yep. experiences yeah. on top of professional experiences. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So I have a question here for Jackie Q. It's going to be the final question. Um, with everything that you've gone through from losing your father to, to suicide, to watching your mother's downfall, to saving a life, to getting shot, to uh, a, a terrible divorce, going to multiple trips to Tanya and the warrior healer healing you, where are you at now? I mean, it's completely twofold. Like, I mean, you if you told me, you know, back, you know, this time in 2021, this was where I'd be at, I'd have said you were crazy. Like, I look at it now and I'm like, there's no way. Like, you know, I think about it, but I realize how much of those building blocks, being able to put them together and going, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to make myself the best version I can be. That's that's where I'm at. I'm at that, like, peak of my moment of, like, hey, I'm, like, I'm actually starting to, like, you know, life's good, relationship's good, money's good, everything's good, and it's just, like, work's good. I mean, it's just this high fly moment of like, you know, and then that's from all the hard work of like going through everything and being willing to face the demons and saying like, I'm not going to fail. That's a perfect way to wrap it up. I just want to read one little thing that I, I found over here. I wasn't just jacking around my phone, ignoring you. I was actually looking for something and you'll see a hero is a person that is admired for courage, outstanding achievements or noble qualities. And over the past almost two hours of sitting with you, I believe you checked the box on all these qualities. I feel like I do, but I appreciate that. <laughs> but she <laughs> does. You do. And the listener's gonna the listener's gonna agree with me. Yeah. Thank you for your service. No, well, thank you guys for letting me share my story. Thank you for your candor. Yeah. It's hard it's hard for people to talk about things mm-hmm. like this and and you did it without batting an eye. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's one of those, uh, if I can help somebody else that's struggling or at a, a, a bad point in their life and seeing like, hey, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There is a fresh start. It, it's there. You just, sometimes you got to dig deep and pour salt in those wounds for a couple couple months, a couple years before you'll finally find that peak of happiness and life is good. I want to thank the great Tanya Glenn for allowing us to use her incredible facility for to do this recording. And also, single-handedly, making me put the explicit tag on this episode with the use of <laughs> pussy and fuck in the same sentence. I warned you. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I, I told, told you. Hard. 
I tried so hard. <laughs> Actually, I, I texted Joe before this podcast, and I was like, I'm a little assed up these days, so if I'm out of, out of control, just tell me to dial it down. Yeah, it's a simple, so. explicit tag. <laughs> My apologies. No, <laughs> easy story. Thank you for coming all yeah, this way. Yeah, I love it. I'm used so. to it. Thank y'all both. Thank Jackie, you. you are an incredible person, and it's an honor to sit with you, and I look forward to visiting with you again in the future. For sure. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey sister, I'll never give up on you Hey Mrs. Hey mister, I'll see this all the way through No matter how far the sun and the moon I'll never give up on you you heavy when the going gets tough I'll be your shoulder together we'll run up from the bottom yeah we'll rise above hey brother hey sister I'll never give up on you hey missus hey I'll see this all the way through No matter how far the sun and the moon I'll never give up on you I'll never give up on you.